Thank you for joining us for a message from the Christian Fellowship Church of Kandu, North Dakota. Please visit our website for more information about our church at kanducfc.com. So today in John chapter 6, we're going to be looking at two miraculous stories that happen back to back. In these two stories, we're going to be learning two important characteristics about God. And then we're going to spend some time today discussing how we can experience those characteristics of God in our own lives. Because it's, it's wonderful to look at the Bible and, and say, oh, that's really great, right? But if we just keep it at really great and we don't say, well, how does that greatness that we're reading about enter into my existence, into my experience falling short of what it is that we're actually supposed to experience. So let's start here at John chapter 6 with verse 1. After this, Jesus crossed over to the far side of the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. Okay, so this verse starts by saying after this. After what? You know, like it's, you can read a, a spot in the Bible and it seems like it kind of comes in mid-thought. And so you have to ask these questions. Say, well, what is after this? Or what was before this? Or what is John talking about here? Well, remember in last week, we finished up with Jesus being in Jerusalem. That was in John chapter 5. He had gone there. He healed a, a man at the pool of Bethesda. And then he entered into a long argument to explain to the Jewish leaders that he truly was the son of God, that he had authority, that he had equality with the father, all these kinds of things, right? And so then it says here at the beginning of chapter 6, so after this, or after that event in Jerusalem, Jesus now crosses over the Sea of Galilee. The only problem is Jerusalem and the Sea of Galilee are about 75 miles apart. Huh. So did Jesus like just instantly arrive at the shore of the Sea of Galilee and then transport to the other side via boat? Or did something else happen between the end of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6? Okay, so it's interesting. The way that John kind of writes his gospel, he assumes that his readers might be familiar with one of the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which would have detailed some of the events that he chooses to skip over, right? So there's actually a whole bunch of stuff that took place between the end of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6. The other gospels help us understand that... Um, Jesus had actually been teaching and healing and ministering in the region of Galilee. That's closer to his hometown up in the north where the Sea of Galilee is, right? So he was ministering in this area for, some scholars believe, six months to a year. So there's actually a considerable period of time that Jesus had been doing something else. And now, because he's in that area already, next to the Sea of Galilee, suddenly it makes sense when John says, after this, Jesus crossed over the Sea of Galilee. Of course, he's right there. So now we know the rest of the story, right? We're, we're filling in the blanks, and hopefully that, that helps it make a little bit more sense. Part of the reason why Jesus crossed over the Sea of Galilee isn't also mentioned here in John John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin and a, and a co-laborer in the gospel, right? Like, John the Baptist was the forerunner. We, we read lots about him earlier in John. And since we last heard about him, John has been arrested. And in fact, now he's been executed by King Herod. When word of this beheading comes to Jesus, clearly he would be sad, right? 
Like this would be a tough situation to endure. And because of Jesus' love for his cousin and his co-minister, him and his disciples, they decide, you know what, I think we're just going to need a little time to ourselves. It's been a busy ministry season, and now they've taken this tough news. So I think that's why they're crossing over the Sea of Galilee. They were looking for time to be alone. Verse 2 says, A huge crowd kept following him wherever he went because they saw his miraculous signs and he healed their sick. Similar to what John has mentioned at other places in his gospel already, people are clearly intrigued by Jesus. He's this miracle man. He's doing things that defy the laws of nature. And they just can't believe it, but they want to be around to see more of it. But this doesn't necessarily mean that they've believed that Jesus is their Messiah. It just means that they're really intrigued or amazed by him, right? Verse 3 and 4, Then, after they crossed over the sea, then Jesus climbed a hill and sat down with his disciples around him. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. Okay, so in these first four verses... John, the gospel writer, is setting the the scene for us. Jesus is seeking time alone with his disciples. The crowds continue to look for Jesus even when he's seeking time alone. And the Passover festival is almost here. Now, it's kind of interesting. It's in brackets here in the New Living Translation, as it is in others. It's kind of like a footnote, right? It's like nobody said this, but this is what was going on. So the reason why John, the gospel writer, brings up the fact that the Passover celebration is almost here is because the Passover is a really, really important festival or celebration to the Jewish people. Passover was the celebration where people remembered how God rescued their ancestors, the Jewish people who were in slavery in Egypt. And it's very possible that because the Passover was so close, the Jewish people were wondering once again about how they would be freed but this time from the Romans, who now occupied their country, Israel. So God had delivered their ancestors in the past, and the people were waiting for God to do something for them again now, due to their present circumstances. So this is the scene, this is the tension, this is kind of what's in the air as we read on here in John 6. Verse 5, Jesus soon saw a huge crowd of people coming to look for him. Turning to Philip, he asked, where can we buy bread to feed all these people? He was testing Philip, for he knew, he already knew what he was going to do. So like I read this verse, and I kind of picture it like this. Jesus is resting, maybe leaning back on the hillside, talking with his disciples, just catching their breath after a really busy and hectic season in their life. Perhaps they were reminiscing about their friend, John, who had died And they were sad about his death. And they remember, oh man, remember his ministry. Remember him baptizing. You were there. You see, I remember you being baptized. Yeah, it was awesome, right? Maybe they were thinking about these things and just enjoying the memories that God gave them of their friend. As they're relaxing and and doing exactly what they intended to do, Jesus sees out in the distance this massive throng of people coming to find him. Now, instead of being frustrated at his lack of privacy... Jesus clearly sees this as a teaching moment. For quite some time now, Jesus has been healing and and teaching people all throughout Israel. All the while, he's training his disciples to do what? The same things that he is doing. So I wonder, I wonder if in this moment, Jesus says, okay, perfect. 
Instead of me just leading, I'm going to give these guys a chance to think this through with me and, and enter into this opportunity in the way that I want them to. So that's why in this moment, Jesus asked Philip, well, where can we buy food for all these people? I think he's just testing Philip's heart because really Jesus wants his disciples to look at people and love people in the same way that he does. It feels to me like Jesus just wants to see if Philip's heart and his way of thinking is starting to become like Christ's. Just the same way that our thinking is supposed to become like Christ's. So this made me wonder, okay, if Jesus tested his disciples in this way by asking them questions or presenting them with opportunities that will reveal what's in their heart, I have a question for you. Do you think that Jesus is still testing us as his followers today? I think so. Matter of fact, like I'm positive that he is, right? I truly believe that our hearts and our character and our Christ-likeness are being tested way more often than we realize. It's not necessarily in big, grandiose ways, but I think it's actually every day in average situations. Every day we face decisions and dilemmas and circumstances that force us to choose how we're going to respond. Is it if with our flesh, with the natural desires that we have that have led us to sin in the past? Or is it with the heart that Jesus is trying to install in us? No, no, no. I actually have a better way. I want you to think like me. Each choice we make reveals if our heart has undergone some degree of change where we now resemble Jesus' heart or... These decisions that we make, they also reveal if we remain unchanged and we still think and act like we always have before Jesus entered our lives. Early in our marriage, while Karen and I were still living in Winkler, Manitoba, uh, she had gone shopping. She was doing her own thing when she kind of came across a family with young kids. She, she kind of was observing them from a distance. She wasn't right next to them. And she noticed that one of the kids was not obeying the mother and was fooling around in the shopping cart. All right? I mean, hey, we've all been there. As the kid, I mean, you know. So the, the child ended up hurting themselves because they weren't listening to mom. You know, clearly, if you're standing up and this thing's on wheels, it's not going to end well, right? So unfortunately, though, the husband... He saw what had happened, and he got really upset at his wife. And right there in the store, he just berated her, which is so nasty, right? He said mean and cruel things to her, and then he took the kids, and he just stormed off in another direction, leaving his wife just broken and humiliated right there in public. Now, Karen had seen everything transpire. And in that moment, she had a choice to make. Was she going to pretend like she didn't see anything and just kind of move along, right, to avoid that awkward moment where maybe she makes eye contact with this lady who's left there? Or does she head over and engage and enter in and and just say, hey, you know, I saw what happened. She had that choice to make. And she did go over. This this woman never even looked up at her. She, She had her head down. She was humiliated. She just didn't want anyone to even see her. But Karen came and just spoke kindness to her and just said, hey, I saw what happened. It's not your fault. You didn't do anything wrong and you didn't deserve to have your husband speak to you like that. What a a kind word, right? In this very average day, Karen's heart was being tested by the Lord. I firmly believe that. He allowed her to witness something unpleasant 
and to then enter in just like Christ probably would have when there was an injustice going on. I think Jesus just wants us to care for the people around us like he did. Like verse 6 says, Jesus already knew what he was going to do in this situation where this massive crowd of people were coming. He didn't ask Philip because Jesus didn't know what to do. He was asking Philip to test him. What do you want to do, Philip? What does your heart tell you to do in this moment? So Jesus had this plan in mind, but he gave Philip the opportunity to be involved and learn. Verse 7, Philip's response, he replies, even if we worked for months, we wouldn't have enough money to feed them. Okay, very logical, right? Very practical way of thinking, right? He goes to finances, he thinks about that. And then I kind of like what happens in the next verse here in 8 and 9. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, he speaks up. Hey, there's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish. I I think he's optimistic, right? He's saying, hey, maybe this would work. But just as quickly as he volunteers that, then he says, ah, but what good is that going to do in this huge crowd, right? So, like, I love the eagerness that Andrew shows. I think it's actually brilliant. Who cares if it's realistic or logical, but the heart that Andrew has where he wants to help, I think that's beautiful. I think that's a good thing. It's just he flip-flopped a little bit in that moment. If he would have followed that optimism into faith, maybe, who knows, maybe he would have come up with a, a miraculous solution. But in this moment, ah, I'm in, I'm out, I'm not really sure, right? Then Jesus, he begins to act on the plan that he already had in mind. Starting at verse 10, he says this, Tell everyone to sit down, Jesus said. So they all sat down on the grassy slopes. The men alone numbered about 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks to God, and distributed them to the people. Afterward, he did the same with the fish, and they all ate as much as they wanted. After everyone was full, Jesus told his disciples, Now go gather the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they picked up the pieces and filled 12 baskets with scraps left by the people who had eaten from the five barley loaves. Reading this story, I think some people are are tempted to say, okay, the 12 baskets, that is symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel. I'm not sure if it really means that or not, okay? And the five barley loaves, yeah, in culture, it says that a barley loaf was like the cheapest kind of bread you could buy. And yeah, maybe there's significance there. I'm not sure, okay? So I'm not going to go there. But here's, here's where I do go when I read this story. I always think about this miracle from the perspective as if I were one of Jesus' disciples, Does anyone else ever do that when you read the Bible? Do you ever put yourself in the shoes of the people? No? Okay, well, you should do that because it's actually, it's marvelous, right? Because if we read this like, oh, this is a textbook and I don't get it at all. Put yourself in their skin, right? Like understand it from their perspective. Think about what Jesus is asking you to do as if you were Andrew or Philip or someone else, okay? But I always do this. I put myself in their shoes and if, if we see ourselves as a disciple in this moment, what is Jesus, our leader, trying to teach us through this miracle, right? Because remember, Jesus started this feeding of the 5,000 by testing Philip. It seems that the first thing that Jesus is teaching us is that, okay, if we're going to start to think like him and have a heart like him, the first thing he does is he gives thanks to God for what they do have instead of lamenting or, or pining about what they don't have, right? He, he takes the five loaves and the two fish and he shows gratitude to his father in heaven as he prays for them, right? 
You know, in Psalm 35, verse 18, it says, I will give thanks to you in the great assembly. Among the throngs, I will praise you. There's something about being in a pressure-packed situation where you feel the weight of what's going on, what's transpiring around you, and like in those moments to say, okay, Lord, I'm in. Whatever you want to do right now, I can't even imagine what it would be. But whatever you want to do, I'm excited about that. Thank you that you would give me this opportunity, right? I just wonder if that's kind of the heart that Jesus is is demonstrating to his disciples in this moment. Perhaps he was thinking, or he was thanking God, so that he would also set other people's attention on the source of the miracle that they were about to witness. Because after all, Jesus did something similar when uh, he prayed before raising Lazarus from the dead in John 11. He actually prays out loud and says in his prayer, Hey, I'm praying out loud so that all these people gathered here will hear me praying. Okay, so that they're going to believe in you after you do what you're about to do. So Jesus is doing that. Like, it's amazing when we pray out loud and other people hear us, their faith is spurred on. Do you ever find that interesting? Because some of us feel that faith is so private and like, to pray out loud is scary. I get it, okay? I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with you or wrong with me if we have a different comfort level when it comes to prayer. But... If we see here that Jesus prays out loud for the benefit of those around him, I think there's something to that. I think it's something that I don't want to, I don't want to ignore. So through this miracle, Jesus is also teaching us about God's abundance. So first he, he models this prayer and gratitude for the situation they're in. And then he's teaching about abundance because this miracle is on an insane scale, right? Five loaves of bread and two fish. And Jesus is going to use that to feed 5,000 men. 5,000 men alone. They say 5,000 because in those days they just counted the men if there was a group of people. Hey, there was, in church today, there was 25 men. Oh, actually, we had 60 people here. There were women and children as well, right? But in those days, it probably could have easily been 10,000 people plus. Imagine a, a lot of these men probably had wives. Some of them were along. Maybe their children were along. And not many people had one child in those days. They had big families, right? So 10,000 people actually isn't a stretch if you understand the Jewish culture. So the abundance of God is clear because he uses so little to accomplish so much. A need that seemed impossible to Philip and Andrew feeding all these people is made possible easily because of God's power. Jesus provided abundantly, not barely. So it it says in verse 12 that they ate until they were full, which is amazing, right? Not only did they just get a little taste, a morsel to tide them over. Here's a granola bar, kids. We're going to be home in in 20 minutes, right? That's not one of those situations. But it's actually like Jesus wanted to meet the completeness of their needs by filling them totally, right? Like it's amazing that that's God's intention. And then in verse 14, it says, when the people saw him do this miraculous sign, they exclaimed, surely he is the prophet that we have been expecting. When Jesus saw that they were ready to take him by force or to to force him, sorry, to be their king, he slipped away into the hills by himself. So this reaction from the people to make Jesus their king by force, it really isn't all that surprising. Right? Even though they came there not necessarily having faith in Jesus as the Messiah, they just saw him as this miracle worker. Remember, 
The Israelite nation, the land of Israel, is under Roman rule. The Romans were occupying Israel by force. Much like what we see is going on right now, where Russia is trying to occupy Ukraine by force. That's the reality that, that the Israelite people were living in. Another country had invaded and said, okay, we're in charge. And they didn't like that. Much like anyone else in any country who has a hostile takeover wouldn't like that either. And these people longed to be out from under this Roman oppression. Plus, it's also Passover. Remember that important detail from verse 4. And the people were thinking about a previous time in Israel's history where they were liberated, where they were freed from oppression. So maybe these things are all connecting in their minds and they're thinking, okay... Passover's coming up. Man, that was so sweet to see our people freed. Man, we're, we're not free right now, but look at this guy. Look at what he's doing. Maybe he's the answer to our problems. So they're ready to take Jesus and say, you are our king. They recognize Jesus saying, maybe this is our prophet. And the word prophet is because in Deuteronomy 18.18, 18, God says to Moses, I will raise up for them, the people of Israel, a prophet like you from among the, their fellow Israelites. And I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command. Is that not a, a description of Jesus or what, right? So they see in this prophecy, they see it already starting to be fulfilled in Jesus. So this is what the people of Israel were looking for, this prophet that God describes to Moses. They wanted this saving. But once again, as we've seen before, Jesus is fully submitted to God's timing. He doesn't say, wow, that would be pretty cool. I mean, to be exalted by all these people and have them say, you are a king, yeah, that would be all right. But Jesus knows that now is not the time. There's more that needs to happen first. There's more that he needs to accomplish before his time comes to be crucified. Jesus knew that God's timing was greater than the people's timing. So he just kind of leaves <laughs> in the way that Jesus can. He just walks away from all these people and then maybe they got confused. Maybe he disappeared. I don't know. But he heads off into the hills by himself and nobody follows him. So it's interesting. A lot of churches, they just kind of stop right there with this story and they... They do this neat little bundle and they talk about the feeding of the 5,000. But I think there's actually more. I think these stories are meant to be tied together the way that we read them in John here. So verse 16 continues by saying, That evening, Jesus' disciples went down to the shore to wait for him. Remember, he went off to the hills by himself. But as darkness fell and Jesus still hadn't come back, they got into the boat and headed across the lake toward Capernaum. Soon a gale swept down upon them and the sea grew very rough. They had rowed three or four miles when suddenly they saw Jesus walking on the water toward the boat. They were terrified. But he called to them, hey, don't be afraid. I am here. Then they were eager to let him in the boat. And immediately they arrived at their destination. So this is another amazing and miraculous moment in the life of Jesus. But I think that the important, uh, I think the important, it's important to remember, again, John's purpose in writing his gospel to us and why he chose to include these two stories, right? John is attempting to move his readers towards faith in Jesus, towards an understanding that Jesus is the all-powerful Son of God. He is immortal. He is divine. So keeping that in mind, let's look at these two miraculous details from this story that we just read here. The first thing, of course, is that Jesus walked on the water, right? Like, incredible. I mean, if you're a science person, if you know the laws of physics, if you've ever gone swimming, it's amazing to anyone, because everyone can understand that to walk on water is impossible. I had someone, I think they were trying to be a bit of a wise guy, but they, they said to me the other day, hey, Jeff, if you put your feet in oil, 
would you be able to walk on water? Because you get it like water, like oil and water always separate, right? And I said, I don't think so. And they asked, well, do you think Jesus did that? I no, 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 he didn't. I, I, like the, I like the question, though. I've heard this story over and over again since I was just a little kid, like dozens of times. But to me, it never gets old. And this week, I kind of wondered if Jesus went through some other options before he chose to walk on the water and make his way out to his disciples. It seems like Jesus, he must have understood or seen his disciples from the shore say, oh, things are getting pretty rough out there. Ah, man, I'd really like to be with those guys. At least encourage them, maybe help them row, do something like that. Maybe Jesus thought, well, I could swim. I mean, hey, the son of God, that'd be easy. I could hold my breath the whole time, whatever, right? Maybe he thought that, but he's like, nah, it's kind of predictable. Maybe he thought, hey, I could fly over there. That would be awesome. Hmm, maybe I'll save that for after the resurrection. Maybe he said, I could send this huge fish. Ah, no, I've done that already. Maybe he just honestly felt like I'm in a walking mood. And he said, hey, I can do what I want. And in in doing what I want, I'm going to walk on the water here. And maybe this was just Jesus saying, look, all the trouble that you see around you in this physical world, I actually have full dominion and authority over it. Even before the, the seas were calmed or whatever, right? He just walked out there like, hey, I got this, guys. Do you see me? Here I am. Do you see me? Look at what I'm about to accomplish in your life yet again. So that's the first amazing part, that Jesus walks on the water. And I think that there's significance in understanding what that really means. It's not just impressive, but it points again to his sovereignty. And as soon as he gets in the boat, this is amazing. It arrives at their destination. Like, don't miss this, right? Three or four miles off from the shore. I mean, I went on Google Maps. I looked at the Sea of Galilee. I'm trying to think, okay, so they're heading towards Capernaum. They were in this area. It doesn't say which city they were at on the shore or which area specifically, but it's kind of like a region. Three or four miles, man, that puts them almost right in the middle of this pretty deep lake. So... I mean, these guys were in some pretty serious trouble. It's not like they were just a few feet from shore and the waves were still battering against them. No, like they were in the middle of this thing. And as soon as Jesus gets in the boat, boom, they're at the shore. Like this is like we talk about teleporting. Like if if any of you guys are like a sci-fi science kind of nerdy movie person, like this actually happened. They were in one place in one moment and instantly they were somewhere else. And did you know that this is not the only example of this in scripture? Oh no, it's not. There's another guy named Philip who after he ministers to the Ethiopian eunuch on the road uh, south of Jerusalem, after he ministers to him, like, transported somewhere else and he appears in another place. Like God is not bound by the laws of this world. I just, I think that's what he's really trying to help us understand. He is sovereign over all these things. Truly, Jesus is more powerful than nature and the laws of this universe. So in these two back-to-back stories here, the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on water, we see three miraculous displays of Jesus' power as the Son of God. Jesus feeds these people, he walks on water, and he teleports him and his disciples. If at this point... We read these stories and we kind of sit back and say, wow, that's, that's crazy. Like, that's impressive. I think that's fine. But if we stop there, we've missed everything that Christ wants us to really see, I believe, in these stories. Remember that the crowds of people who followed Jesus around the Sea of Galilee to kind of find where Jesus was seeking a little bit of a retreat with his disciples, they came because, why? Jesus did miracles and he healed their sick. 
They were clearly impressed by him. But it doesn't say that they came because they believed and wanted to be ministered to by their Messiah. They wanted to learn from the Lord. They were followers, not fans. Or they were fans, sorry, not followers. And what Jesus is looking for in us is not a fan. Not someone who says, hey, Jesus is super cool. He actually wants people who says, wherever you go, I will go. Because my life is in your hands. Whatever you want to accomplish in me, I willingly give that up for you. So although we've read about miracles that happen in the physical realm today, they seem to point to some deeper spiritual truths about Jesus that I think we need to observe. Through the feeding of the 5,000, we learn that in Jesus there is abundance. Jesus is more than enough for everyone who comes to him in faith. So let me ask you a question. When you, when you think about Jesus and your connection to him, do you approach Jesus like he's a God of abundance, a God of unlimited supply and resources? Or do you think of him as someone that you're bothering and it's like, well, Jesus doesn't have time for my needs. There's surely more important things going on in this world. Philippians 4 verse 19, I hope, is going to help us to all see Jesus as a God of abundance. It says here, And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Riches is what Jesus' abundance comes from. It means that God is the source of anything and everything that we could possibly need. His supply that he is eager to give to you is endless. It's boundless. It's unlimited. He will never need to ration his provisions for his people to make sure that there's enough to go around. As a matter of fact, just like the the feeding of the 5,000 illustrates, there's usually more left over than we even realize. There was more at the end than there was at the beginning because through Jesus, he is never going to, or Jesus is never going to run out of anything that he wants to give to us. I think we need to stop and ask ourselves, do we believe that today? That Jesus can meet all of our needs. And I mean like everything. Can he meet our needs when we're feeling lonely? Or do we have to turn on a TV to just hear another voice, right? Can he meet our needs when we're looking for another job? Or is it up to us to write a sparkling resume and that's going to be what changes everything? Can Jesus meet our needs when we're trying to break a bad habit? When we're trying to get free from some sort of spiritual bondage? when we need joy in our life, when we need a reason for living again. Can Jesus meet those things, friends? He can. And that's the confidence that we need. We need to know beyond the shadow of a doubt that every situation we're in, big and small, regular situations that we find ourselves in time and time again, or the first time we're ever dealing with a situation, we have to recognize, okay, my God is a God of abundance. So this too, I can to him with with confidence understanding that he will meet all of my needs this is the confidence that we can have in god's abundance and in first john 5 verse 14 to 15 it says this is the confidence we have in approaching god that if we ask anything according to his will he hears us and if we know that he hears us whatever we ask we know that we have what we asked of him so this verse describes the confidence we can have in God's abundance. And it says how we access the abundance of Christ. It's through prayer, through prayerfully depending on him. 
Ask him for what you need in your life, and he will answer according to his will, which means that he will provide what he knows is best, and he will do it because he loves you. If we are confident about Jesus' abundance for us, that means that we should come to him in prayer about everything, even the things that we think are tedious. You know, Kent, you've told me a couple of times, and I love this. I'm going to use you as an example. Kent likes golf. I like sports too. And Kent says when he's out on the golf course and he's having a rough round, which doesn't happen very often, sometimes he'll pray and say, Lord, what do I need to do? And God will say, hey, you need to bend your knees or turn your wrist or whatever it is. And all of a sudden, whack, right up the middle. Do you think God cares about Kent's golf game? He does. Come on. He does. He absolutely does. Jesus loves Kent and he loves his golf game. Man, if you're playing bocce ball in your backyard with your relatives and you want to hose that cousin who always beats you, pray. Why not invite Jesus in to those situations? Why? Because he's a God of abundance. We don't have to just wait and talk to him about like the really big things in life. Jesus actually cares about everything. I heard a story once from a friend of mine who said that they were going home to their, to their mom's place after they had been away at college for a month or so. And they thought to themselves, man, I really hope my mom has baked these cookies, right? Because they love these cookies. And when they got there, mom had baked those cookies, And you know what this person's first reaction was? They didn't say, thanks, mom. I'm glad you thought of me. You know what they said? Jesus, thank you so much that you care even about the cookies that my mom is going to bake for me. Do you think God cares about those cookies? Yeah, he does. God will reveal his abundance to you in the most menial ways that you've ever seen. But it reveals the truth that whatever you need, God is there and he cares. He's generous. He's kind. He wants to give. So as we lean on, on Christ's abundance, what he offers us is deliverance. Okay, and that's, I think, the piece that we see here when Jesus walks on the water. In Philippians 4, verse 6 and 7, it kind of talks about this idea. It says, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. So to me, this is saying, okay, have confidence in God's abundance by going to him consistently in prayer for everything that you need. And then the next verse is, here's the result. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Come to Jesus with your needs, and he will meet your needs. He will address them. He will help in the situation that you're in. So the result of praying is that God's deliverance enters our lives. His abundant riches provide answers, solutions, and help and strength that we can't find through any other means. Isn't it weird how we so often were tempted to trust in ourselves? It's like, well, I've been doing this for 20 years, so I can handle this. I actually don't need to pray and ask God. Man, I, I preach 50 times a year, roughly, 49, whatever. If I just said after three months of doing this, it's like, I've done this for three months. I can do this. I have experience. That's the moment where the wheels fall off and the the air comes out of the building and the Holy Spirit says, okay, let's see what you got there, big guy, right? But the moment, in the moments where I stay humble and say, Lord, I know I've done this a lot of times, but man, honestly, I just, I don't want to go off on my own. My experience does not hold a candle to your abundance. Do you believe that, friends? 
You need to. (laughs) With confidence. Sometimes deliverance will look like God rescuing us from the circumstances that we're praying about. Where we find ourselves in in hot water or in a really rough deal and God's just going to say, Yeah, you know what? I actually never intended for you to be here. And I'm going to rescue you from this. I'm going to take you out. I'm going to deliver you to a different place where you and I can function together the way that I intended. And other times, God's deliverance is going to look like him strengthening us or giving us surreal peace, even while we remain right in the middle of the difficult situation that we're in. But that deliverance is only experienced when we trust in this God of abundance. The most important thing to note, I think, today is that we access all of this. Everything that Jesus is modeling for us, this character of abundance and deliverance from God, we access it through prayer. We just talk to God and speak to him honestly about where we lack and where he can fill in the gaps for us. You know, I... I love, I love preaching. I love sharing God's word with people. But if, if anyone ever looks at me and says, wow, look at Jeff. He's just, you know, full of life and energy. Clearly, he must never get worried about anything he ever says up there. If you ever think that, you've got another thing coming, okay? <laughs> Yesterday, for example, I was actually super nervous about this message today. It was, it was a busy week. There was a couple extra things going on. And I just feel, I felt like I couldn't get in the rhythm that makes me comfortable to stand up here with confidence and then share what God has laid on my heart. So uh, many times yesterday, I just kind of was like, huh, I wonder about that point. I wonder about that verse. Does that actually make sense? Am I, am I on the right track here? Is this going to matter to anyone? Like, And all these thoughts, all these worries, all these anxieties, just like Matthew 4 verse 6 said, all those things were entering my life. And it was so weird, like when we were going to bed or we're getting the kids to bed and, and Easton and I were in his room and we were praying together and I was praying for him just because he was a little plugged up and I, I wanted to pray for health for him. I, I ended up praying for the message today too. Just like, you know, Lord, I'm not feeling too confident in the message for tomorrow, but I just ask that you would just enter in and, and, and make this work for your glory. And there was this moment where I was like, well, I hope that works. <laughs> I'm praying to God. I'm praying to this abundant God. And then God reminded me, Jeff, you're talking about my abundance tomorrow. Oh, right. And it was like in that moment, just this wave of peace came over me. And I, even though I, I maybe still had things I could have been concerned about, it's just they were all gone. And I just said, you know, Holy Spirit, you've been there hundreds of times when I've stood up on stage to try to give a word for you, for your glory, for the edification of your people, why would I start to doubt now? Why would I think that you're about to, to pull the ripcord and just, you're, you're out of here? You're actually so in. You're more in than I am. I just need to rely on you. And I, I came to church this morning. I looked over a few things, but you know what? I just didn't worry about it. And it was like God was reminding me of his abundance. And I don't know, you be the judge if he's delivered us this morning or not. But man, I feel, I feel like God has been here and it's been, it's been a really good thing. Last thing I want to mention here before we close. You can come up already, Karen. Tonight, or not tonight, but this afternoon at 1 o'clock, we have the rally, which is our prayer and worship night. You know, we talk about how entering in and experiencing this God of abundance and confidently trusting in him, it happens through prayer, right? And we also talk today about how Jesus 
He prays so that it benefits those around him. Have you ever considered, even if you're not uh, an out loud prayer, if you've never come to the rally, if the whole idea, idea just scares you to death, have you ever considered that when we get together as Christians and we corporately lean on the Lord together, maybe that's where we experience the abundance of God in a new way? I mean, I can pray on my own, and the Holy Spirit is just as real there as he is when I'm praying with other people. But I I take very seriously the thought that where two or more are gathered, there I am with them. And I believe that God is asking us to trust in him as a God of abundance today. And perhaps the first step for some of us is coming back at one o'clock and just saying, okay, I want to experience this God of abundance. I I want to know what it's like to trust in him. And even though you might just come and observe That's better than choosing to stay home and watch hockey or whatever you're going to do this afternoon. I think God has so much more. But you have to to take a step, right? Jesus is holding this out for us. Why not come and perhaps experience God in a new way? Maybe you're going to to be partnered with someone. You're going to hear them pray for the first time. And it's like, man, I've never thought about asking for the things that this person just asked God about. Maybe I can pray in a more dynamic way than I ever thought was possible. Maybe my prayers don't have to be so one-dimensional. And we actually learn. The the times in my life where my prayer life has grown the most is when I spend time with someone else who I listen to pray. And sometimes it's a brand new Christian who's done it very little. And it's like, oh man, the simple trust and joy that they have in talking to their Savior. Did I lose that? Jesus, I want that back. Or maybe it's praying with someone who has been praying for years and years and they teach me something. They model something for me. So here's the thing, friends. If you are interested in experiencing Jesus, this God of abundance, on a new level, in a new profound way, maybe it'll happen this afternoon. I would invite you to come. I'm going to be here. We're not going to make you do anything that you don't want to do. You're not going to have to pray out loud. You're not going to have to stand up in front of anyone. As a matter of fact, we never have anyone stand up in front of everyone and pray. That would be strange. (laughs) If someone wanted to do that, we wouldn't turn them down. But we're not going to make anyone. But we just invite you to come. Enter in. Maybe this is a test. Maybe you right now are being asked by Jesus, Hey, would you come? Would you pray? Would you experience my abundance?